Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the Detroit School Board and the Detroit School Board elections coming up on November 8th, in addition to president and lots of other big national and state issues and local issues, we are also electing a new school board here in the city of Detroit. We're going to talk with uh, WDET Sasha Ryan and Chastity Pratt-Dossie, a reporter at Bridge Magazine, about that upcoming election, what it means and uh, what we might expect from this new board. And then we're going to have two members of the current board of education in Detroit. Uh, the board in exile, so to speak, uh, has not been in charge of the district for many years because because of emergency management, uh, Elena Harada and Tawana Simpson will be here to talk about uh, their role in all of this uh, and whether they will be on the board uh, after November 8th and what they might try to do to make this new district successful. So you're going to want to tune in to that. And of course, we'll want to hear from you during those segments. But first, a couple of weeks ago, the Smithsonian in Washington opened the National Museum of African American History and culture right on the National Mall. Within a couple of days, tickets to get into this museum were sold out for months. Now you're looking at late winter, early spring, I think, before you would be able to get in to see the museum. It's that popular. Uh, the museum chronicles the substantial impact of African Americans on this country from the very beginning, and likewise, the substantial and often painful impact of this country on African-American lives. And yet some questions lurked in the recesses of the internet. Why should African-Americans get a whole museum devoted specifically to their history? I saw lots of that question being asked when the museum opened. I really wanted to be there for the opening of the museum uh, because I thought it was really important. And I thought uh, we might uh, even be able to broadcast shows of Detroit Today from Washington during that opening. We couldn't work that out. But uh, today I have the next best thing here. Michelle Norris uh, is a longtime public radio personality and journalist. She, she wrote an article for the National Geographic about the new Smithsonian Museum. Michelle Norris is, of course, one of my favorite NPR personalities. Uh, used to host all things considered here on WDET and at stations around the country, left to go sort of explore different spaces around race in the country. Her race card project is one of the more innovative ways that I think a journalist has taken on the challenge of getting America to think and talk more about race. And she has a book called The Grace of Silence, which is about a, a chapter from her family's history that invokes some of the racial uh, issues and pain and promise from America's past. So I'm very pleased to welcome Michelle Norris to Detroit Today. Mr. Henderson, it is great to be with you. Yes. I am such a big fan of yours. It's oh, thank really you really great much. to be with you on your show. <laughs> it's good to hear your voice. Uh, so, so let's start with the museum. This piece you wrote in, in National Geographic was a really, I thought, uh, sort of incisive and penetrative look at what this museum is and why it's important. Uh, for most of our listeners, uh, this will be sort of a look inside the museum that they have not gotten for themselves. Tell us Tell us about uh, what, what's significant here and why it matters. Well, Nat Geo called me months ago, and National Geographic magazine called me months ago and asked me to consider writing this piece, and it was an easy yes. 
um, because um, I, I just was fascinated with the this this building that was growing out of the soil on the National Mall, and we should begin just by talking about the structure. By now, I think most people have seen pictures of it. It's unlike any other building, um, not just in the Pantheon of Smithsonian Museums, but really any other building in Washington. And I was fascinated by this building designed by Phil Freelon and David Ajay, Um, but also the mission of this building to actually look back with clear eyes at the history of African-Americans in America. And to do that by embracing the most difficult and darkest chapters chapters of the story, but also you know also telling the story of triumph and perseverance perseverance and joy and I decided to, to I was fortunate that I was able to write this piece as the museum was being put together, so I was able to follow the curators, I was able to spend a lot of time with Lonnie bunch and and to really understand how they decided to tell this story and to figure out where they would push people outside of their comfort zone and how they would try to find the balance between the joy and the perseverance and the triumph in the story and also just the gut-wrenching pain. I mean, this is a museum unlike anything I think most people will have experienced. Even if you've been to the Holocaust Museum, even if you've been, you know, gone overseas and and, and visited the Holocaust Museums um, in, in Europe, even if you've been to some of the, you know, to Gory Island or places like this, this museum really takes you into spaces and forces you to look at things that, unfortunately, we just sort of glance over in our history books and we just sort of glance over in um, our, our popular, you know, telling of American history. And it forces you to sort of get inside these stories and, and to really understand what it was like to be enslaved but also what it was like to hold people in bondage, and then what it was like for America to wrestle with these concepts of freedom from its earliest beginnings through the civil rights era, through you know the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and even today. And I mean, in the irony that this museum would open at the close of the administration of the first black president, sure. but also at a moment where we're experiencing so many convulsions around race and class, and place in America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things I think is really significant about this museum is that it is a Smithsonian, uh, and and I think that's significant on a number of different levels. One is that uh, Smithsonian is synonymous with museum in this country, right? It is the sort of apex of the idea of museums, uh, and it is uh, it is our national uh, museum, and I think that's important. And I and and. Then I think the, the the sort of statement that makes about the African American experience in this country, sort of elevating it to that level, is a really really significant uh, marker. Oh no no doubt, Stephen. I mean, this is as I say in the in the piece. This is where the world comes to understand what it means to be American. Right. And for a long time, there were you know there were some stories that would help explain the thread of. African American culture and the you know and the larger American tapestry, but it was it was so, always sort of an afterthought. It was sort of a single thread in this larger tapestry. And what this museum helps you understand is that this is not an ancillary topic or an ancillary issue. This is a bright, bold thread in the American tapestry. It is you you really can't understand America unless you understand the history of African Americans in America and through you know through sports through culture through politics through agriculture through transportation it it is um 
you know, I, I heard in the intro you, you noted that some people wonder why should there be an entire museum dedicated sure. to African-American sure. culture. Well, because it is so much a part of American culture that you, you really couldn't do it in just a section of, you know, the National Museum of, of American History, that the, the curators and the people who supported this museum ultimately decided that it really needed its own museum, both to fully tell the story, to help uh, address the collective amnesia that we've had about some of these issues, to do a little bit of catching up since some of these issues have been ignored, and also to serve as a beacon for other museums to step boldly into this space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Michelle Norris, longtime public radio personality and journalist. Uh, she wrote an article recently for National Geographic about the new Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. We are talking about that piece, about uh, the museum itself, uh, and about this sort of moment in America around race and the conversation that I think we are maybe beginning to have about race uh, and its effects, uh, its lingering effects here in this country. If you want to join the conversation, you have a question for Michelle, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page, the WDET Facebook page, and comment there, or go to Twitter and hashtag us at uh, Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Michelle, you 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 left uh, NPR's uh, All Things Considered a few years ago uh, to do some other things, and as I mentioned in the open, one of those things is the Race Card Project, uh, <clears throat> which I which I described as one of the more innovative approaches that I've seen to this whole idea of starting a conversation about race, reviving conversations about race that uh, had sort of faded into the background, and challenging people to really think about the way race shapes our lives here uh, in in America. Uh, first, I want you to describe the project and, and talk about sort of where it has taken you uh, over over the last few years. But then I also want you to talk some about that moment that I think we're experiencing. I, I, we, we talk a lot on this show, in fact, about this racial moment, about the things that we're seeing, about the things that we're hearing, and a renewed attention, I think, to the way that race has an impact on on everybody's life here in America. Uh, tell us about the Race Card Project and, and where you've gotten. Uh, Stephen, I wrote this book that, that you mentioned to your listeners. Um, it's called The Grace of Silence. Yes. It was about sort of the hidden racial legacies in my own family, the things that my parents never talked about yet shaped our lives in significant ways. Um, and, and when I did that, I knew I would be going out in America to talk in talking about race with large audiences. I was on this 35-city book tour and visiting several of the, the um, uh, member stations and bookstores around the country. And I thought that no one really wanted to talk about race. I felt that there was this grand reticence around this topic. So I asked people to participate in a simple exercise. Share your story with me about race or cultural identity, but do it in only six words. And I thought that that would make it a little bit easier, that it would be kind of a you know an exercise that people might find enticing. Uh-huh. And um, to my surprise, you know, huge numbers of people took the bait. They started sending in their stories. And then I asked them, I, I, on the form, I added two words, anything else? You know, do you want to explain your six-word story? And right. that was like turning on a spigot. <laughs> oh, you want to know what I had? So, the, you know, the project could be called Glad You Asked. <laughs> right, right. Because people started sending, you know, and it's sending their backstories. And it's amazing how much power you can pack in 
to just six words, white, not allowed to be proud. My mother hated my dark skin. Um, black babies cost less to adopt. Um, I'm white, but I don't feel privileged. You know, and, and, and over time, it became, it became this lens that allowed me to see things that I couldn't necessarily get to inside of a studio. Um, or even if I was out traveling the country because it went deep so fast, people shared the kinds of things in this public space that they really would only talk about in their most private spaces. So it's almost like a taproot into the this sort of submerged um, fears, hopes, memories, laments, um, tragedies, concerns, questions about about race. And it it kind of, it was like the side project that almost took over my life yeah. and it was it was so interesting to me that it happened at this moment that you know we were going through economic tumult we were going through a certain amount of tumult because of the changing demographics in the country because of the the fact that a black family is living in the white house and the the issues that 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 surfaced um, and now with the election you know many of the things that you see expressed at trump rallies about make america great again or mm-hmm. people feeling that they have no agency in a country that they that they once felt was theirs um it, it it is not at all not entirely surprising to me because these sentiments have been arriving in my inbox in over the last um, five years. So as a journalist and a storyteller, it has been an incredible resource to really help me understand not just America, but we also get submissions from all over the world where people may not call it race, but they find other ways to separate each other. Sure. You know, otherness is a concept experienced in lots of different ways and many parts of the world. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the conversation of about race gets to this idea of lingering inequality. And, and as you point out, the race card project sort of predates the, the, the current conversation about inequality that I think has been fueled largely by the things that we see the, the, the things that we see on our screens, uh, for starters, right? The, 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 the killings of, of, of African Americans who are unarmed by police uh, in, in many cities has, of course, really sort of uh, put the issue back on the, on the front burner for us. Um, th- th- that question of inequality, though, I think is, is something that we are starting to talk about in ways that you know are, are are difficult and painful. People are in some cases saying things that uh, that other people don't want to hear. But I do feel like there is a there has been a change. There has been an opening to the ability to have those conversations on some level. I, I would agree with you, um, and in some ways we're forced to because we can't ignore the fact that we've seen black death on small screens with alarming regularity. Yes, and you know, and that has an impact on you. Um, I fear that it may that people are getting inured to this. Oh, it's happening again, and it's you know it it, it lessens in somehow in some ways the shock value, but it forces a conversation. What I love and appreciate about the race card project is it allows me to to access aspects of that conversation that are difficult to get to even as a journalist. So many of the submissions that I've received in the wake of some of these incidents come from police officers. Um, some of them send them in anonymous, anonymously, some not. You know, and they say things like, hated for being a white cop. And they talk about the difficulty of wearing the uniform right now and walking into a wall of hatred every time they enter a community of color. And and they'll talk honestly in some ways about how at some point you start to become that thing that people expect you to be. You know, that you kind of, 
because of the fear, because of the expectation, because of the chasm that grows between the policing, um, the law enforcement and the law enforcement community and the community of, of color, that that both sides sort of harden. Um, people write in in quite honest ways about implicit bias and sort of owning up to their fears right. and owning up to the expectations that they have of other people, you know, based on small markers. I mean, one of the things that was surprising to me that, you know, I, and I admit to being surprised all the time, and I appreciate that because it's, it's a constant education, the number of working-class men who wear baseball caps, uh-huh. <laughs> who feel like they are marginalized in some way. Yes. You know, and, and then it's, the research shows that, you know, when you, when you go through these implicit cognition studies and the way that people are quick to attribute positive, um, uh, to ascribe posit- positive attributes to some group and, and more negative attributes to another group, that people do make assumptions about, you know, white men who wear baseball caps um, and about their class and about their intellect. And, you know, so there, there are all these fractures in America that, that divide us, but in that big mosaic, those fractures also allow light in in some ways or allow us to see see inside of a culture or to see things that we that we couldn't um, see in other ways. And so the, the conversation is more fractured and more fractious and more difficult. But I, I perhaps it's the optimist in me that I'm um, from that other M state, Minnesota, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, uh, that uh, I, I am an optimist and I believe that as difficult as these are, that as a society and as a culture and as a country, that ultimately they make us stronger. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Michelle Norris, a longtime public radio personality and journalist. Uh, she wrote an article for National Geographic recently about the new Smithsonian Museum of African-American history and culture in Washington, D.C. We're talking about that article and also the issue of race more generally here in America, the conversation about race, the conversation we try to have here on Detroit Today about race and class and power. Uh, How is that evolving? How is it changing the way that we see these issues? Are we more willing to talk about these issues and maybe then to confront them than we used to be? Uh, again, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. Or go to the WDET Facebook page or hashtag us on Twitter at Detroit Today. Uh, Michelle, before I let you go, I want to I want you to talk about your book, uh, The Grace of Silence. And and there's uh, there are a couple of reasons I just really love the, the, the premise of this book. One is that it is your look back at uh, a, a personal history uh, in your in your family, the relationship uh, that you have with that family. Which is something that I can uh, can relate to very strongly. Uh, here in Detroit, I'm in the middle of a big project that's taking me looking backward uh, at the place where I was born and where my father came from and, and things like that. Uh, but you also, uh, of course, connect that story to this larger narrative about race in America and the things that we tell ourselves, uh, the things that we tell other people, and then the things that we keep secret. You know, and it, it, the, the book in some ways dovetailed with the museum, and that's why I was so willing to take this assignment when they asked me to write about it. Yeah. Because at the museum, they, they, did, they started this museum with, with no artifacts, which is unusual for a Smithsonian. They decided to go out and find treasures that would help tell the story of African Americans in America, and they knew that many of these things might be in the hands of collectors, but many of them were also just stocked away in people's attics and basements and garages and, you know, shiver robes in their bedrooms. Sure. 
and uh, and they thought that because museums had not necessarily valued these things, but also because communities of color hadn't valued these things, or that they had stored them away because they were so painful. And that spoke to me, because I grew up with people that I thought I knew very well, and only recently, and really spurred in some part by the election, um, the candidacy and the election of Barack Obama, when the older members of my family went through this period of historic indigestion and just started sharing stories all of a sudden, I realized that there were these really painful chapters that they just decided not to talk about. My father had been shot by a policeman in Birmingham, Alabama, after he had returned from his military service and was trying to enter a building where veterans, black veterans, were trying to learn as much as they could about the Constitution so they could pass the tests that they would have to take in order to vote. And he never talked about it. He never told my sisters. He never told my mother. I learned about it by one of my surviving uncles. And and I think that as a people, African Americans in particular didn't tell those stories to the next generation because they so badly wanted the next generation, even our generation. They wanted us to soar. And so they didn't want to weigh us down with their stories of pain and woe and marginalization. And I use the word grace in the title of my book because that's an incredible act of grace, to to swallow your own anger and disillusionment, to try to give your children this clear path forward so that they would see the best of America, you know, a country that did not treat them well. They still wanted our generation to embrace America and see it for its possibilities. And that story is not unique in my family. It happened over and over and over again, and it's almost as if a, a group of, of of people who were really amazing in their perseverance and in the way that they survived things that many of us can't even imagine fought for something that they thought that they might never see in their lifetime and and took that pain and just sort of put it away so they could just focus on moving forward to a better place. Sure. And and in so many ways, that is the that is the American story. That is the... That is the sort of promise of this country that attracts people from around the world, uh, but also just is baked into the sort of DNA of, of people who are here. This idea of always being able to try to move forward, no matter how painful the past is, that that tomorrow you can move to a different different space. And, and sometimes... Uh, that's done, as you point out, with with great great difficulty and and pain, uh, but it, but it always perseveres. It's the thing that binds us together. Well, and it's the thing that can make us strong if we embrace those stories. So whether your family came here from, you know, from Europe, from South America, from uh, somewhere, it doesn't matter. I bet that there are stories that got lost somewhere on the journey. That you know, America is, is full of people who sort of reinvented themselves when yes. they arrived on these shores. Yes, and. And I have become, if I can even use this word, almost evangelical about this, and encouraging people to embrace their histories, even when it's difficult, or perhaps especially when it's difficult, yes. because your history is part of your wealth. And just as you wouldn't leave money on the table, um, you shouldn't leave your, your historical wealth on the table either. You should figure out where you come from, who your people are, and, and how they did persevere, because I guarantee that that will add to your own reservoir of strength in doing so. Yeah, what a, what a great phrase, your history is part of your wealth. I, I, I love that. I'm going to I'm going to steal that and go right using it myself. <laughs> myself. Uh, let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I want to really thank your guest. She's one of my favorites, too. But when she spoke of her father, my father passed a couple years ago, but uh, it's interesting that she used it, the phrase that he, he protected your family from some of the negative memories. My father did so as well until we got grown, but uh, he survived the 30s and 40s and 50s, and now we're in such a, a culture now that we don't even realize some of the horrific treatment that uh, our parents and grandparents had to survive. But one of the things my father would always tell us is uh, when we would talk about race in America and he would talk about how how the established won't, establishment won't even admit uh, uh, what they have done, and he said, you can't admit to something that you're still doing unless you're going to change it. And one of the things that we need to get to as Americans is there's still too many things on our books and in our laws and in our uh, standards of, uh, of how we treat people that are still negative towards African Americans and other uh, uh, races that uh, we need to change if we're really going to come out of that dark age uh, uh, of racial disparity and uh, inequality. Wow. Aaron, thank you very much uh, for calling and, and sharing those thoughts. Aaron, of course, is a regular caller here at uh, Detroit Today, and I always love always love to hear from him. So thanks very much uh, for that call, Aaron. Uh, Michelle Norris, uh, thank you very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Uh, we would love to see you here in Detroit at some point. Uh, oh, I think we can make that happen. Yeah, no, that would be really great. We'll, we'll talk about that offline. That's and, right. and I'll just say this about Aaron. Aaron's father sounds like he was a very uh, smart man. Yes. And and wonderful that he was able to share those stories with his yeah. children. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Michelle Norris, thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Good to be with you. Yeah. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, uh, up next, uh, there are so many people running for the Detroit uh, Public School Board of Education that voters will have a hard time just reading through the names on Election Day. Up next, we're going to talk about the people who want to represent us uh, in education here in the city of Detroit. And we're going to talk to two current school board members about their predicaments. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <laughs> 